Welcome to The Story So Far, a podcast series by the Silk Road Institute that explores a broad range of artistic expression by Muslim artists in Canada through the eyes of the artists themselves. From music to literature, film, design, fashion, and more, we invite you on a journey into the minds and creative practices of some of the most talented and inspiring Muslims creating art in this country today. I'm your host, Tendesai Cromwell. In this episode of The Story So Far, we take you to Regina, Saskatchewan for a conversation with Zarka Nawaz. Zarka is a producer, author, public speaker, journalist, actress, and former broadcaster. She created the highly regarded CBC comedy series, Little Mosque on the Prairie, which broadcasted from 2007 until 2012. At the time, the show received the highest ratings at CBC in over 20 years and also went on to win awards both in Canada and internationally. After the success of the show, Zarka went on to author the comedic memoir, Laughing All the Way to the Mosque. Since then, Zarka created and acted in a new eponymous CBC web series and published her debut novel, Jamila Green Ruins Everything, which were both released in 2022. We chatted about how she evolved as an artist, the challenges she's faced as a Muslim writer and producer, her relationship with humor in her work, and much, much more. Let's take a listen. So I wanted to start by saying that, of course, you know, everyone knows Zarka and your work is incredibly groundbreaking. Uh, your work in film and television, along with your writing, has paved the way for so many Muslim artists and creatives. But I'm curious about the life of young Zarka that led you to become the storyteller that you are today. So as a daughter of immigrants, I was brought up to you know, pick a profession that is very secure and the number one profession for a lot of the immigrant community is medicine. And so my father really wanted me to be a doctor. He was, you know, a child who had grown up during the partition in Pakistan. Pakistan had, it was 1947, he had been 15 years old and his family lived in India. And like a lot of people, they were part of that mass migration. I think at that time it was one of the biggest human mass migrations in the world. And, you know, they lost their land, they lost their jobs, properties, homes, and they started all over again from scratch. And it had a profound impact on my father. And he felt that the one thing that no one could take away from you was education. And because in that time period, the eldest son is expected to take care of the whole family financially, he became an engineer, he moved to England, and he started sending money home. And whenever he would return home, his female relatives were married off at a young age. And it was the culture at that time because that was a way they could keep um, women safe was to get them married into families. But he always felt that his female relatives were these really intelligent women and that their potential had been cut off at marriage because then they would you know, be subsumed with motherhood, being a wife, family. So he got it into his head that his daughter, I, I was his only daughter, was going to avoid that fate. And the way to avoid that fate was to have a career which made a lot of money, and that was medicine. And so I grew up with this mantra that you will become a doctor, make a six-figure salary, and then that whole thing about women getting married and having children and then your career not advancing will never happen to you because you don't have to get married and have children. So we can cut that out of your life. So that was my goal growing up was to become a medical professional. And 
<laughs> but then you turned to storytelling. And so... Yeah, well, I didn't get into medical school. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's what happened. So storytelling was a backup in a, in a... No, it wasn't even a backup. Like, I was going to... I got my... I went to university and got a science degree. Right. And I was doing really well. But it was... I, I did really well in high school. But it wasn't until I got to university and I started taking arts courses. And suddenly these courses in organic chemistry and calculus and physics just weren't interesting anymore. And I couldn't focus on them in the same way that I was focusing on the arts classes. Right. And then my my grades started to drop. And, I, you know, but I just ignored it. And I still applied to medical school. And so when I didn't get in, it was like the single most devastating experience of my life because I didn't have a backup plan. I didn't have a plan B. I literally had no other career goal or ambition because I had been sort of raised with just one goal. And so it was it was really like discombobulating because you're like, wait, like your entire life, you've been sort of bred for one reason. And, and, and you know, my father, like, like he had never even considered that this wouldn't happen. <laughs> and it never even occurred to any of us. And, and so I was like, oh, no, what, what, what am I going to do? And my mother, of course, who never felt that marriage and, and having children was a failure in life, kind of jumped in and said, oh, my God, you know, why don't we consider marriage now? Like, you're, not, you're in your 20s. And, you know, in her day and age, like being in your 20s, like you're practically an old maid. And she was, you know, she had been nervously sitting on the sidelines during these conversations between my father and I. And suddenly, you know, she has this network of aunties and, well, I have, you know, she has a network of friends that are my aunties. And there's all these young men in the U.S. who are doing PhDs and they just needed, you know, a bride with benefits, meaning citizenship, because <sighs> a lot of them came here wanting to stay, but they couldn't because of the deals with their universities back home in Pakistan was that you would get your PhD, but then you'd have to come back and do a several years of service. So remember, all of a sudden, these men started showing up, and, and this one guy came, and he goes, listen, after we get married, we have to move back to Karachi for, for a few years. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, I am going to wind up either, like, this can't be the only choices in my life, right? Like, doctor or housewife in Karachi. Like, those are my two <laughs> options. And I was like, no, no, there has to be a third option, but what is it? And I was really confused because I don't, I didn't have a plan B, but my best friend had, was always talking about going to what was then called Ryerson, you, you know, Ryerson Polytechnical Institute, writing novels, making films. And, but I, you know, I had always listened to her, but it always seemed very, um, like exotic, like that, right. that's, that's something that other people do, like non-Muslims do, that's very sexy and forbidden. And th those are not careers meant for conservative Muslim women right. like myself. And there were no role models at the time, but I had no choice because I realized, like it just like pulled me out of my despair because I realized I had to figure it out. And so I applied. I applied to Ryerson and they actually gave me an interview. And I was really fortunate because I didn't have um, a portfolio or any, you know, clippings or anything. I mean, you know, this is a really tough school to get into, very competitive. And because I had made the a decision very suddenly, I hadn't had time to even work part-time as a journalist. So I applied to the journalism program, and they gave me an interview, and, and the interviewer was really, like, curious about me. He's like, you are the only person who's ever applied 
with a science degree because I had a BSc. He goes, everybody else is applying with a B, a BA. He goes, why is that? And, and I realized, oh, my God, this is my chance. And I right. said to him, oh, because I, I knew you were the most competitive school <laughs> in Canada. And the only way to compete was to, to plan ahead and get a BSc so that I would be different because you are going to need journalists with science backgrounds to write stories about science. And people with BAs just don't understand science the way I will because I <laughs> took the time to get a degree in this subject. Right. And he was so impressed with me that he said, my God, so forthright in terms of planning. And he, and he let me in. And from there, like I blossomed and I realized, oh my God, this is a fabulous career choice for me because it's storytelling. Right. And that's how it started. So I did a, a two-year degree in Ryerson. Let's skip ahead now to 2006. So this is a year before the release of Little Mosque on the Prairie. You're now in Regina and you're embarking on something that no Muslim in the country up until that point had successfully endeavored to do. You're in production. I you imagine you're in production or maybe late development. I don't know. For what would become a wildly successful show about ordinary Muslim life. But take me to the moments just preceding the fame, the acclaim. Paint me a picture of what Muslim creative, the Muslim creative landscape looked like when you conceived of this idea. I mean, the only shows that I ever saw about Muslims were always very, like, they never reflected my life or my relationship with my faith. You know, there were shows coming out of the UK. Um, I think it was East is East or My Son the Fundamentalist. But they were always these shows that always showed Islam in a very negative light, something to be mocked, something to be rebelling from. And and then, you know, there was the terrorist trope that we're also used to, right. Homeland. Yeah. So it was a pretty bleak, bleak, bleak world. And I, I hadn't heard of any Muslims making television shows that were more positive about Islam or just had a norm, or an organic sense of what our community was. And I didn't know any writers. Um, and even Canada, we, we didn't have a success rate with sitcoms. I mean, we had Trailer Park Boys. We had, you know, Beachcombers or King of Kensington. But we didn't really have an industry that you could draw on. Right. So it was kind of like, you know, my own community, there was no one to really look at. Even in Canada, there weren't a lot of role models. So nobody really expected anything from this show. And I was told point blank by people in the industry, CBC will just put money into this. You'll go into development and it'll disappear. Mm. And I suspect maybe they thought the same thing, except we were starting to get media interest and it was starting to grow. And CBC was starting to notice that stories were leaked about the show starting and and, and people were asking questions. And they real, I think they started to realize that they had something, like they had something that they didn't have before because nobody paid this much attention to their shows before. Right, right. And so by the time we aired... It was, you know, we had broken records yes. for ratings. That was a period of tremendous success for the show and for yourself. And then the finale was in 2012. You then go on to publish your your memoir. But then for nearly a decade, you take a step back creatively. But now we've entered a new Zarka era with a debut novel and a CBC series in the same year. It's a almost like a, it's a creative rebirth for you. How have you evolved as an artist um, over those those many years? And, and how is that reflected in the work that you, you create today? So I would say I didn't take a step back. I would say I was still pitching, but I just couldn't get another show off the ground. Uh, like okay. CBC wasn't interested in making another show with me. And in the U.S. I, was, I had pitched, but 
none of the pitches worked. I see. So then I was like, okay, so now what to do? Because the success of the show didn't necessarily translate into the second Muslim show, and they seem to be a resistance in the U.S. I mean, to this day, there hasn't been a mainstream Muslim family comedy show on the mainstream broadcasters. The closest they've come to is on Hulu, Rami. Yeah. Um, now, now we see We Are Lady Parts, that, but that came out of BBC first. And even on Hulu, they were the first Americans to broadcast Little Mosque on the Prairie. So then they picked up Rami. So I wonder how much picking up Rami had to do with you know, the success of having Little Mosque on on Hulu. So so I had pitched to every single, you know, network in the U.S., Fox, CBS, ABC, NBC, and had successfully sold pilots, but none of them got greenlit. Why do you think And so there is? seems to be yeah. this... Re- I, I don't know. It's very confusing. Like, Muslims seem to be this one demographic that is a hard one to cross over. And it's... it's I, partly, I think it's because... There aren't like the industry is set up where you, they you know you have to they buy like say one network will buy a hundred and fifty pitches and so there's a hundred and fifty writers writing for say just NBC in one year, and from there, they will take maybe five to pilot and from those, one will air and likely not make it. So right. there's a ninety nine percent failure rate. So you have to have a massive number of people. Um, in if you want a Muslim show, then you've got to have a lot of Muslims pitching because uh, the success rate is very high. And so we're just entering this field in baby numbers. And so the odds are against us just number-wise, right? So we have, as a community, traditionally gone into science, not into the arts. So we're starting to see more Muslims in those fields, but you would need to have massive numbers in those fields before you're going to see seismic change. And so I think that's one of the reasons. We just don't have the qualified writers out there. They're starting, but there's not very many of us, not given the odds of what it takes to get a television show off the ground. Right. So I decided, you know, so... if it was going to be that hard to get another show off the ground, I still wanted to keep writing. So then I switched from television to publishing. So then I wrote my memoir, Laughing All the Way to the Mosque. And then it was 2000 and it came out, I'm trying to remember, 2012? 2012, I think it was 2014 when ISIS emerged right. in the media. And at that point, I was like, okay... I want to write about this because nobody else is going to write about this. And it's not working. Like all, like writing about this subject seriously is not working. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a book and I gave it to my agent and and they gave it to my publisher who published Laughing All the Way to the Mosque. And they were like, no, we don't want it. It's not ready. It's not quite right for us. And so my, you know, my agent said to me, listen, like once you get turned down, that means no one's going to give you an advance and you, you're on your own. Mm, okay. So you have to figure this out on your own. So I was like, okay, so now I'm going to have to hire editors and pay out of my own pocket and work with them and get this book to where it should be. Because I really felt strongly it was a good book and it, there was a real story behind it and it was about a difficult subject. And so because writing a novel is a very different medium than writing for television... I had a lot to learn. Um, it, so it was like getting a creative writing 
degree. So I would hire an editor every year and they would teach me the different aspects of creative writing and novel writing and help me shape the novel because I had a lot of Middle Eastern history in it. Right. I was trying to explain the context for how this group came about. So I, every year I would hire a new editor. And by the sixth year, the editor said to me, listen, how many editors have you been hiring? <laughs> and I said, well, you're my sixth. And they're like, okay, I think you need to stop now. I think you're getting addicted to editors. <laughs> like she was, a, she was an editor, like she was a script doctor, like editor. And she's like, people come to me to help get published. And usually their novels are terrible. But this is one of the best constructed novels that's come to me. There's a few things I, I'll give you notes on, but you need to give this back to your agent. I don't understand why something like this can't get published. Right. So I did. I submitted it back to my agent and they resubmitted it to the publishers. And this time within days, it sold in both Canada and the U.S. It's a book that's like nothing else that I've ever read. It is a truly unusual, but very humorous book, a take on a very serious issue that I've just never seen anything like it. And so I'm, I'm very glad that it's out in the world and, and, you know, we Canadians can lay claim to that you were able to create something like this and, and it, for it to be published. Now, I wanted to talk about, um, so, you know, when you were creating Little Musk, in terms of Muslim representation, you talk, like, I like to use the idea that we were living through a winter. But, like, now over a decade later, we're kind of living in a spring. You know, there's growth. There are many um, celebrated uh, and talented Canadian Muslim artists. What does it feel like to be creating in this moment where there's a kind of a renaissance? I wouldn't quite call it that yet, but we're getting there. And to know that you had a role in planting the seeds and shaping the artistic landscapes for Muslims in this country. I, th I mean, it feels great because, you know, now I'm looking at second season of my web series and, you know, I... Um, I'm looking at the writers I can draw upon, and now suddenly there's writers. Yes. <laughs> writers, and I'm like, wow, we have options. We can hire people. <laughs> right. Because when it was Little Moss, there was no one. It was like Saudia Durrani was a stand-up comic in Winnipeg. And I remember phoning her and saying, dude, I can't be in a room with like seven white men. Like I need, <laughs> I need someone Muslim on my team. Right. this is insane. So she like dropped everything, came into the room and started writing for the show and started getting trained up. And I was, I've been pushing Muslims ever since. Every, if I meet someone that's funny, I'm like, you know, you, you can do this. I remember meeting Salma Hindi. Yes. <laughs> and she was just talking. She was just talking, but I wish I could do this. I wish I could listen, you can do it, but you have to actually do it. Like yeah. You have to just start doing it. And then she did it. And I look at her, alhamdulillah, you know. And so whenever I meet someone that I think has potential, I'm like, go and do it. And if there's any way I can hire you, I will hire you and get you on my team and work with you. And now suddenly, like I was talking with Saudia and I said, you know, let's talk about second season. Let's talk about writers. And suddenly we had a list. We're like, oh my God, we have a list. We have more writers than we, than we have episodes for. Right. And this is fantastic. And so I can see that the change is happening. And it's great for, for people like me who are looking for writers to staff because we need people with experience and now we have options. So it feels good, alhamdulillah, that finally, you know, we have more writers in the industry that we can use. And now I wanted to talk about your relationship to humor. I read and I listened in an interview that you said that it's a way for people to broach difficult topics, but also has served for, you know, as a coping mechanism to deal with sort of the, maybe the difficulties of being a Muslim in this country and in this world. Um, and your approach to satire has been very effective. Could you tell me about your relationship to humor, both creatively, but also I'm really interested on to know about it personally as well, and if it has maybe evolved over time? 
I, I, you know, I'm just drawn to comedy. It's sort of a natural instinct. I don't do it on purpose. Like I don't say to myself, you know, let's not pick drama. Let's pick comedy. <laughs> it's always been comedy. Like there's never been from the beginning. Um, whenever I try to write something dramatic, it just doesn't work. Right. And it is a bit of a weakness in my writing because sometimes it's just, you know, I can't, like you have to ground, ground things in heart and emotional arcs and, you know, and I find that harder to do. Like I would rather just be flippant and superficial. And so that's why as a writer, especially in television, you find, you figure out what your weakness is and you bring people in that can fill those gaps for you. Right. But it's just been very natural and it's the way that I process the world and it helps me create, dif you know, difficult um, subject matter in a way that's digestible, like Middle East, like botched American foreign policy. Like I want young people and old people to read a, this book and to enjoy it and and really think, oh, this was so funny. I laughed out loud. But also feel like they learned a lot about yep. something very serious. And right. that's important to me. And I feel that it's a way to transcend those boundaries. Like if I had written a 300-page serious report about botched American foreign policy, which there's tons out, you know, tons written about already, but it just doesn't cross over to the mainstream. Right. So I feel like the only way to get it to cross over into the mainstream is to do it in a very commercial way. And that's, you know, very broad um, comedy because it has the greatest reach, I think, for people. But also, and I have to say this, it's not universal, right? It also is limiting, limited in terms of a certain group of people also will find things funny and a certain group of people will not. Right. And so, like, even when I made Little Mosque on the Prairie, like, there was a huge backlash against the show because a lot of people say my parents' generation didn't understand the comedy. Right. Um, they felt I was insulting Islam and they were quite upset and angry about it. And so... That's something also to keep in mind is that you can reach people, but then there's a group that you won't reach, or sometimes they will misunderstand the work. And when they misunderstand the work, they get really, really upset. Yeah. So, so there are limiting factors to comedy as well. I'm writing a novel myself, and it's one of those heavy, very poetic kind of novels that is dealing with, um, you know, a tragedy in a Muslim community in Toronto. And I'm trying to infuse so much humor all over the place because it is such a heavy topic, but my natural instinct isn't to write um, comedy. And so I look to you and I look to others to sort of think about, okay, how best to infuse that comedic element so that people it connect to people um, and people aren't going to feel, feel so heavy, you know, reading a book about, I don't know, um, a mosque uh, arson attack, right? And so it, it actually, it's, it's been instructive to sort of read your, your work and, and, and watch your books. So I just wanted to mention that too. Yeah, I think you, you should also lean into your strengths. Like um, not every, like I have a hard time with grounded emotional um you know writing that way and so you but i have to learn because it makes for better writing right. but if your instinct is drama it's still a story right so just because it's comedy doesn't mean it's the only way to get a message across what i mean to say is story is better than say a newspaper story because people story is more universally um digested by human beings right. And but whereas comedy as a story has its limitations because I feel that depending on the type of comedy, you may not connect with all the people that you were hoping with. Right. <laughs> 
because they have to also come from the same viewpoint you come from, sometimes the same generation, sometimes the same class structure. You know, it's, it's like there's a whole there's a whole complication to how people um, consume comedy, where a story is wider. Like as long as you're a good storyteller. Yes then I think that that's less limiting than, say, comedy. Well, the thing, so for me, like, I've avoided books about the Muslim community that have been too heavy. And I'm like, would I read my own book if I read the description? I'm like, I'm not sure. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out, you know, how best to navigate that. But I, I wanted to turn to, you know, your, your novel and your series. Though they're a very different story, they seem to be created from... In, you know, the same creative and emotional space, you know, provocative stories um, of spirited Muslim women who embark on wild journeys filled with missteps and mishaps, but told in your characteristic humorous way. You know, I'd love it if you could share a bit more about the origin stories. I know you talked about um, Jamila Green Ruins Everything being a book that came out of a response to ISIS. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that and as well what came, why you chose to tell the story, Zarka? <laughs> yeah, I mean... So like I mentioned, the whole decade, right, that I couldn't make television again. So there was also this introspection, like, why is this happening to me, especially after the mosque? And, you know, as a Muslim, like, you ask God all the time, why? Like, why are you giving so much success to all these other people who don't even believe in you? And meanwhile, I'm here trying to serve you, and I don't get this. And so there was this sense of bitterness and anger and you know, loss. And I think that I was going through a really bleak time spiritually while I was writing the book, which is what you read about in Jamila. Like when you read those prayers, like those are coming from a really, like a real place because those are actually being said (laughs) to God. And there's this sense of like, why? Like, why am I being tested like this? Is this a test or is this just professional failure? I can't tell the difference, right? Right. And so there was this questioning. And then I was trying to lean on the things we are always taught and see, like, is that working? And so we are taught, you know, you seek help in prayer and patience. And so the question I had is, well, how long does one have to be patient and then, you know, that whole verse in the Quran that you will be tested with loss. Yes. And I, then I was trying to ask myself, is this loss? Is this book never going to get published and this is a loss of labor? Is that what this is? <laughs> so, And so I'm always trying to double guess God. Like, what are you doing here? Is this a test or is this a loss of labor? Right. Is this not never going to happen? How do I know the difference? What am I supposed to be doing? And so I was questioning and questioning and questioning and then just trying to understand concepts in their faith like what does tawakkul mean right. what does it mean it kept saying in the quran it kept in the quran it kept saying you know trust you trust and i'm like what does that mean trust and the, the, so i was going through sort of the spiritual questioning and trying to understand it and i was writing the book simultaneously right. and and I had the imam tell me the things that i knew i was supposed to be leaning into and so I was, I was kind of going through this spiritual cycle with the book, like trying, you know, Jamila was going through a lot. I was going through a lot. Right. And I was trying to sort myself out emotionally and mentally and spiritually. And so I, because I, when I was writing the book, I had no idea it would ever sell. I was just like, I go, at what point do you give up? Like, what, <laughs> what point do you say, okay, I've, I've done it. I've done it. I put it aside and it's enough now. And I couldn't figure it out, right? I'm like, how do I accept failure? Is it over? And so that's what I was asking myself in the book. 
and 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 had the imam talking to me and so i remember like when it sold and then and i get, and that was sort of the answer to the prayer well this is how long you had to wait like right. 6 years you know, right it took 6 6 years yeah. and and it wasn't meant to be a failure it was meant to have come out but you didn't know but what did i learn from this right what is the lesson here and and so that's what i'm grappling with now is what is the lesson in all of this and i mean part of it i feel is that we are meant to go through difficult times because we are meant to surrender to god and to surrender to faith and to sur- just just to surrender and say i don't know I will just keep going, but I won't, but not to give up to despair. Right. And that's a hard thing. Like I remember reading in the Quran when, in, when, you know, Miriam, peace be upon her, was giving birth and she was so scared and she was connected to the divine. Like she had, God was speaking to her and she's still in the Quran. It, it has verses that say, I wish I was forgotten. I wish I was a thing, you know. Like, I mean, she's talking about disappearing and never being created and like not existing. And that despair when you're still connected to the divine. I think Allah put those verses in the Quran so that we could see and hear that it's okay to feel lost and unguided and, and to feel despair and to feel like there's nothing left. But that if you just keep that connection, like if you just keep praying, it'll be okay. That was actually... One of my, the, the last question that I had was, you know, the despair and the disappointment you had at the progression of uh, the progression of your career and how it connected to your spiritual state. And so you answered, like, what, what advice or th- lessons could young Muslim artists like myself who feel like, like, I feel like I'm going through my own winter right now. And just hearing you talk about not giving up and continuing to maintain that connection and having patience, it's, it's really, it's really meaningful. Um, and so I appreciate that. I I wanted to ask. So I was really what I what struck me about um, your novel and your show is that you're totally um, unafraid to depict bold, flawed Muslim women, and it made me think of my friend, um, Canadian Egyptian novelist and poet. Her name's Noor Naga. She wrote a entire book about a Muslim mistress. And she delivered a talk a few years ago in Toronto, and she, you know, argued against writing solely positive representations of Muslim characters, even when people like her father was were like, well, writing comes with the moral responsibility. But she, she said, you know, I want to be able to have the freedom to be on my worst behavior through literature and not always be reacting to, so, you know, to so-called mainstream. Have you, because there's been backlash to Little Moscow Perry, and I imagine there would be certain conservative elements who might have different views on, you know, Zarka and even your your novel. How have you wrestled with the idea of moral responsibility as an artist? You know, it's. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's an interesting discussion. Like, like I don't um, I don't shy away from telling people that I, you know, my work is primarily to serve my creator, and that's essentially my intention on Earth. And I am up against a secular community who don't easily digest the story. So I'm not interested in making digestible stories for the secular world about Islam and Muslims. Like, I'm just not interested. Like, if you have a book about Muslim women being beaten or, you know, some horrible, you know, honor crime or whatever, and you want me to blurb your book or support you, like, I'm sorry, (laughs) like, I'm not going to do it. 
you just ask someone else, it's just not me, and I'm not supportive like of those types of projects. I feel like there's enough out there already, and they don't serve the community. So for me, my moral responsibility, I feel, is to talk about spirituality and one's connection to one's faith through the work that I do. And I try to get that out in different ways. And I mean, in the book is very easy. Like you can see yeah. the the intentionality behind the book. Um, but at the same time, there are Muslims who get very upset because the book does, it's about Muslims and terrorism and ISIS. And they would rather I had never done that and just stick to writing wonderful stories about Muslims. But, but in my mind, my intentionality was very clear that I'm trying to talk about the context in which ISIS appeared and what were the conditions under which, you know, Iraq and Syria were attacked and the power vacuums that formed that caused this group to exist. So in order to write about that, we have to write about Muslims and terrorism. And that sort of goes against the grain. And some people would rather, you know, me not do that. But I feel it's my moral responsibility to talk about those things because there are still to this day repercussions that exist. There are still women who left as teenagers to join ISIS and are now stripped of their citizenship, languishing in refugee camps and their children are there and governments just want to kind of, what I say, you know, Guantanamo away those issues because put your head in the sand and just not think of Muslims as human beings and sometimes you have to give a terrorist if there's a woman who joined isis and we consider her a terrorist we have to give her humanity give her her humanity back so she'll be treated like a full human and be given full rights so that she can be tried and sentenced and she can have some sort of closure to her life but just to forget about her and the reason we forget about her is because she's considered subhuman right. and i'm trying to bring back the humanity to those people right and so, so I will be going against the grain. I understand that some people will say we don't want those stories because people are starting to not talk about Muslims as terrorists. So why are we reminding them? And I'm like, well, because there are real consequences of not dealing with this head on. Right. And you, we have to do that. And so I feel like that's one of my processes. And making the show Zarka, it came from these really angry brown women who wrote think pieces about the film The Big Sick they were so angry because at that time when you had a man of color who was in a romantic comedy with a woman it they were these women were writing that he would date brown women but only as kind of like comedic foils undesirable unattractive right. you know lesser than to be to be swept aside for the white princess Always, you yeah. know the trophy yeah. And I mean, some of that has changed today, but in that time period, that was what was considered normal. And so the idea of how to take that subject on, the whole race politics of love, so I decided I would have a character who would get back at her ex by doing the same thing and dating a white trophy to go after his white trophy. And I wanted to get away from, you know, like we never see Muslim women as... um, agents of their own romantic life like they're always subplots and I wanted to get away from the same old story that we always tell about Muslims and tell a universal story of revenge and anger and jealousy and then talk about how middle-aged women are devalued in society 
And I feel like that brings humanity back to being Muslim. And we don't always have to tell stories about being in the mosque and praying. And they don't always have to be like little mosque-esque stories. They just have to be stories about people who are fully rounded people. And you can do it without like, you know, promoting dangerous tropes about Muslims if you do it with intentionality. And so that is the way I use as a guide for my work. Right. You know, um, I read this long profile piece about you, which is really good. And in it, I was um, unsurprised to read that, you know, when a university um, studied your show, that people who watched it reported lower scores of measures of prejudice. Now, the impact is clear with the show, uh, not to mention, of course, that you've paved the way for a generation of young Canadian uh, Muslim creatives. Now, with your new show and your debut novel, what impact do you hope it'll have in this country? Or do you think about impact in that way? I mean, I I never make a project and and then think, oh, what will the impact be? I always make it and just think, how can I make the best entertainment that will be so funny that will transcend people's understanding of what Muslims are? Mm. Because I feel like I never know what the impact will be. And I never, because I mean, you know, in, in the past, so much of it has been negative from the Muslim community that now I'm just like, I just put on my blinkers and write the best story, the funniest story, the most entertaining story that I can from my perspective and then and then send it out into the world and see what happens. My goal as a creative is not just to be um, someone who's putting out creative content, but somebody who actually owns her own IP and builds her own production company right. and can make the decisions that normally have been given to white men and women in terms of control and power in this industry. And I want to be like a Mindy Kaling or a Shonda Rhimes where people come to me for the shows. That I don't depend on the broadcasters and the streamers. They depend on me. Uh. And I want to get to that point in my career because I'm tired of being rejected and pitching to people who don't get the stuff or to understand and watching other people get big deals because of their parents or their pedigree. Right. And I want to get to a point where I can make such excellence and mentor people up to such a degree that I'm no longer dependent on the system, that system is dependent on oh, me. Okay. And that is the goal. That is the final goal. So that's Sarka's next move, huh? <laughs> can't, mm-hmm. can't wait to see it. I just wanted to thank you. This is very illuminating. You're making me think I should try my hand at script writing. <laughs> I really appreciate taking the time. Go for it. I should go for it, yeah. All right. Okay, thank you so much, Sarka. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. The Story So Far is a Silk Road Institute production and was funded by the Canada Council for the Arts Digital Now Grant. We acknowledge that the Silk Road Institute operates on the traditional territory of the Ganyan Kahaga, presently known as Montreal. These are unceded Indigenous lands and a place which has long served as a meeting and exchange among many First Nations, including the Ganyan Kahaga of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, Huron-Wendat, Abenaki, and Anishinaabe. We recognize and respect the Ganyan Kahaga as the traditional custodians of these lands. The show was produced and researched by Asan Mogo, script writing and editing by Anam Shaw, additional script editing by yours truly, Tendesai Cromwell, the executive producer and creative director is Mohammed Shaheen, music by Suad Bushnak, marketing and communications by Noal Salim, sound editing and mixing by Mark Knox at New Sound Productions, graphic design work by Hamza Ali, 
Special thanks to Silk Road Institute's Programs and Development Manager, Miriam Zaidi. For all of our episodes and to support Silk Road's future programming, visit silkroadinstitute.ca. I'm your host, Tendesai Kramo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>